Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. These verses, uh, actually, the entire chapter explain a very dark part of human history that I do not think can be satisfactorily explained any other way. Uh, when we understand the symbolism here, we'll understand why things have been and continue to be the way that they are. We'll see that history is indeed following a specific course that God foretold in this book, the Bible. And so there are things that have happened in the world and continue to happen uh, today and, and will happen yet in the future that God has laid out for us. And like I said, you, you can't really understand them apart from what God's word has said. And they have to do with the things that we're looking at right here in these verses. They have to do with uh, the woman, the uh, dragon, and the male child. And the question uh, first and foremost, is who are they and what is their past, present, and future relevance? And so as we look at this, we're, we're going to get an understanding, I think, into not only past history, but into the current state of affairs and where things are going. And of course, the book of Revelation is, is a book that's about the future. But in being about the future, it also has much to say about the past. So who is the woman that is being spoken of here? Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars, uh, being with child, cried out in labor and pain to give birth. Who is the woman that's being talked about here? Now, uh, Catholic interpreters would say that this is obviously Mary. And that is pretty much the, the Catholic position. Uh, so much so, uh, the Catholic uh, Church is so convinced that this is Mary, that they have uh, developed statues and, and images that depict this very thing. And I remember as a, as a kid, I remember being in the Catholic Church and uh, being around, you know, Catholic things. I remember seeing this image on a number of occasions, a statue of the Virgin Mary standing on the moon and having the star uh, or the, the garland around her head. And, uh, you know, in some way there was the, the depiction of the, of the sun and so forth. Um, so I, I remember that clearly. And that is the, the position of the Catholic Church, that this is undoubtedly a reference to Mary, they say. Now, some evangelical interpreters believe the woman is the church. So they, they read the passage and they say, oh no, the woman there is, is not Mary, the woman is actually the church. It's the church that's being referred to. Now, I personally do not think that uh, either one of these interpretations are accurate. I think that um, the woman is here a reference to Israel, to the nation of Israel. And I'm, I'm not alone in thinking that. Many others think that as well. Um, 
And there's a number of reasons that I think that. I think the text itself uh, and, and the overall you know, picture of the book of Revelation, I think that it necessitates that understanding. But we also have a, we have a biblical basis for that conclusion because this is not the only place in the Bible where this imagery is used. It's actually used one other place and it's used in Genesis chapter 37. And back in the 37th chapter of Genesis, that's the story of Joseph. And maybe you remember some of the details of, of Joseph's life and his story. Uh, Joseph had dreams. Uh, he had two dreams specifically that he told his family about. Uh, he had one dream in which he and his brothers were out in a field and they were harvesting and they were uh, binding up the sheaves. And uh, in the dream, his brother's sheaves all came and they bowed down before his sheep. And he told his brothers the, about the dream and they said, they said, what are you talking about? Are you gonna rule over us? You think we're gonna bow down to you? And they did not like that dream. Uh, they rejected that. Uh, Joseph was the, the favored son of his father, Jacob. So there was envy, there was tension. So anyway, they, they rejected that. But then Joseph had another dream. And Joseph told his second dream to his father. And this is what he said in his dream. He said, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. And Jacob, his father, responded and said, shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down to the earth before you? So Jacob interprets that imagery as being a reference to he, his wife, and his other sons, which, of course, was the nucleus of the nation of Israel. Israel came from Jacob. Jacob's other name is Israel. And so based upon that, as well as just what, what else is said here in the book of Revelation, I think that we have to conclude that the woman here is none other than Israel. And the woman is with child. And Israel was carrying the seed of the promised Messiah all through their tumultuous history. So remember, the, the promise of the Savior was originally given to the first two people, to Adam and Eve. And then it, it was specified that it, it would come through, you know, one of their descendants. It was then... Uh, Seth was, was to be the one through whom the promise would be fulfilled. And then uh, from Seth, it went to Noah. From Noah, it went to his son, Shem. And from Shem, it finally went to Abraham. And then Abraham to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob and Jacob and his 12 sons. And then ultimately through Judah, the Messiah would come. But all of this was there from the very beginning of the, of the well, all, all the way back to the dawn of time, but certainly from the beginning of the history of the nation, that the, the nation was in a sense what you might say they were pregnant with the promise of the Messiah. And so Israel was carrying the seed of that promise all throughout their history. So the woman is Israel. But then we come to the dragon. Who is the dragon? Well, it says here, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, 10 horns, seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour the child 
as soon as it was born. The dragon is clearly Satan. And we don't have to go far to discover that because verse nine tells us exactly that. Look at verse nine. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old or that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. So we've got the woman who is Israel, we've got the dragon who is Satan, and then we have the child. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to the throne of God. Uh, the child is Jesus. Now that seems to me uh, pretty clear and undeniable, but there are uh, interpreters who have said, no, no, the, they, they find that the child is representative. Some, some have even said, no, the child is the church. Uh, but I think, I think clearly the child is a reference to Christ. The male child is to who's to rule all nations with a rod of iron, of course, that's what Jesus is to do. And the child was caught up to God and to his throne. So this is, again, is sort of the bigger picture look at the events that are taking place, but it's a behind the scenes look as well. Because it's showing that in Israel's history and their experience, even in the coming of the Messiah through Israel, behind the scenes, there's this war that's going on. There's this attempt by the dragon, Satan, to thwart the, the fulfillment of the promises that God gave to the nation. And so as we look at the passage here, we see that there is opposition coming from the dragon, Satan. There's opposition to the woman and the child. And if we go back in the history of Israel, we find that this is exactly the case. So in the, the long history of the nation of Israel, now this is all leading up to the coming of Christ. Prior to his coming, in that long history there, there are five attempts on the part of world powers to annihilate the Jewish nation or to uh, either, either to wipe them out or to assimilate them so that they no longer have a distinction. And you find that that was uh, attempted by the Egyptians. And of course, that's where the whole exodus began there uh, with God delivering them from Egypt. But a similar thing was attempted by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians and then by the Persians and then... Uh, by the Greeks. Each one of these world powers, they were all world powers at, one, uh, at a given time in history, uh, each one of them sought to wipe out the nation. And of course, as you look behind the scenes, you realize that it was uh, Satan, it was the, the activity of the dragon behind the scenes that was driving them to this end. And, and there are many times in the Old Testament where we look and we see that the, the curtain is sort of drawn back, if you will, and we get to get a, a behind-the-scenes look at things. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 14, there's a prophecy against the king of Babylon. And as the prophecy is going on against the king of Babylon, suddenly, without any explanation, it transitions 
from a prophecy about the king of Babylon and a judgment to speaking directly of Lucifer, Satan, the devil. You have it in Isaiah 14. You have a similar thing in, in, in Ezekiel 28 where it's the king of Tyre that's being spoken of, prophesied against. And then again, suddenly it shifts over from the king of Tyre and you're looking at this anointed cherub who covers this one who's perfect in wisdom. And again, the explanation, of course, is that you're, you're looking at Satan. And then you see a similar thing in the book of Daniel. You see in Daniel, there's references to the prince of Persia, references to the prince of Greece. And in both cases there, it's not talking about the human rulers, it's talking about the spiritual powers behind them. So my point is this. In all of these attempts to uh, annihilate or assimilate Israel, by these leading world powers, Satan was the force behind it. But then, because all of this, of course, I think was an attempt to prevent the Messiah from coming, but of course, God overrules and the Messiah does come. But then when Jesus comes, just as we read here in the text, the, the dragon is there before the woman waiting for the birth of this child, so he might devour it. Now, remember, Satan had, he did not know when Jesus was going to come any more than anybody else did. So all throughout their history, he's looking to see when that moment might come, and he's trying to prevent it from happening. But then it does happen. He's not able to stop it. Jesus comes, but he seeks to destroy Christ before he can accomplish his mission. And so we see from the very beginning, Jesus is born, and what happens? Immediately, Herod seeks to destroy the child. And you remember the story there. The, the Magi, they come from the east. They, they hear that this uh, king of the Jews is, is born. They come to Jerusalem, and they're asking the question, where is the one who is born the king of the Jews? Herod gets wind of this. And so he calls the scribes together. He says, where's the Messiah to be born? They said, in Bethlehem. That's what the prophet said. And so what does Herod do? He sends out his forces and he commands them to destroy all of the, the, the male children in Bethlehem, two years old and under. He's gonna try to wipe out the Messiah before he can ever accomplish his mention. So, of course, we see the satanic inspiration behind that. But as we go on through the life of Jesus, you see many occasions where there are attempts to destroy Jesus. Think of the story in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth. And this is at the very beginning of his ministry, and he declares to them that he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. Behold, the, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and so forth. Jesus reads that passage and he says, today, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And instead of embracing him, they become enraged that he would suggest that he's the fulfillment. And it says that they drove him out of the synagogue to the edge of the cliff upon which the city was built and they sought to throw him over the cliff. They attempted to kill Jesus. 
And as we follow along in his ministry, we find that oftentimes it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Herodians, they were all conspiring together. They were all looking for opportunities to silence him. They were all looking for opportunities to kill him. And finally, of course, the chief priests and the Roman authorities did conspire and they thought that they accomplished their mission. They put Jesus to death, but he rose from the dead and then ascended to heaven. And that's what we have here, that the male child, he was caught up to God and his throne. Now, again, my point is, the point that I'm making is, is the satanic uh, inspiration behind all of this activity. And lest you think I'm just exaggerating the case, remember in the gospels it says in regard to Judas that Satan entered Judas and Judas betrayed Jesus. So you see the devil was behind the whole thing there. So he doesn't, he's, he's unable to stop the, the plan of God in, in bringing the Messiah into the world. All of his efforts to, to wipe out the, the, the nation or to corrupt them so thoroughly through false religion, everything fails. God brings his, his promise to fruition. Jesus comes, he dies, he rises again, he ascends to heaven. But the, the persecution of the Jew doesn't stop. The, the hatred of the dragon uh, doesn't stop at that point. And so now we're looking at the history of Israel or the history of the Jewish people after the time of Christ. And one of the things that stands out in, a, in an extraordinary way when you look at the history of the Jewish people is the persecution of the Jews. And it, it, it is a historical fact that there has never been a people in all of history that have been persecuted like the Jewish people have. Now, that's not to take away from the fact that other people have been oppressed and are still oppressed. It's not to, to take away from other attempted genocides that have occurred over the centuries. Of course, you know, all of those things are um, realities and they're horrible realities. But the, but the truth of the matter is there's never been a, a, a people group that have suffered and, and been persecuted and hated among the nations like has been the case with the Jews. From Roman times down through the ages, persecution of the Jews has been national policy in one country after another. It's really astounding when you uh, look at some of these things. So from the dispersion of the nation in 70 AD, now 70 AD, the Romans, they destroy Jerusalem, they slaughter uh, a, a huge number of Jews. It's debatable as to how many were slaughtered at the time, but uh, some say that over uh, 100,000 were slaughtered and a million were carried off into captivity at that point. Uh, nobody knows the exact numbers, but there was a, a, a destruction. They were carried off. So from AD 70 uh, to the time of the Holocaust in Europe, Jews have suffered one persecution after another in almost every nation that they have found themselves in. And of course, under Hitler, and some of us would know these uh, things better than others, but under Hitler and the Nazis, six million Jews were murdered from the years 1933 to 1945. And 
That is a number that is so staggering. It's, it's almost inconceivable to think of that number of people. And it, and it wasn't limited to you know, Hitler and the Nazis. There was a complicity in m many of the surrounding nations uh, to destroy the Jews. And uh, many nations of the world were involved in either directly uh, attempting to destroy them or preventing them from finding refuge and so forth. And, you know, when you read the history, if you've read any uh, history of the 20th century or the Second World War, uh, the rise and the fall of the Third Reich, those kinds of things, all of this stuff is just, it's unbelievable. It's inconceivable almost that this actually happened in the world. In, the, in his opening statement for the prosecution at the Nuremberg trial, and for those of you that don't know, the Nuremberg trial was the, the, trial, the, the trials of the remaining uh, Nazi uh, leaders. They were tried after the war was finished and they were sentenced and so forth. But in his opening statement, the prosecution uh, there at the trial, Justice Robert Jackson, he said this, he said, history does not record a crime perpetrated against so many victims or ever carried out with such calculated cruelty. So he said there's nothing like this in history. And he was right. Nothing like this in history. Now here's my, my point. I have a few points, but one of the main points that I want us to, to understand today is that this thing that we're talking about, this, this persecution of the Jewish people throughout history, the biblical explanation for this is that the dragon has been at war with the woman from the beginning, trying to destroy the woman and ultimately thwart the, the plan and purpose of God. That I think is, is really in the end, the only satisfactory explanation for this unique experience of the Jewish people. Now, this isn't over. It isn't over. And that's, that's the thing that's, of course, tragic and frightening. But the dragon will make one final attempt to destroy the woman. And that's what this chapter is telling us about. And look with me just real quickly at verses 13 and 17. Verse 13 says, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Then verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Now, for our purposes here right now, we're just we're going to concentrate on the woman as the nation collectively. Uh, on as we get into our chapter study, we'll get into more of the details here and uh, a little more clarity on the woman in certain places here, being a reference to the believing remnant. But like I said, for our purposes, we want to look at the the long war against Israel that is being waged by Satan. And here's another question. Is there anything happening in our world today that could lead us to believe that Satan is still attempting to destroy the woman and thwart the reign of the male child his, who is to rule all nations? 
So is all of this stuff we're talking about, is this just history past? Or is there anything currently happening that would lead us to believe that this war still goes on and it still has its climactic uh, moments in the future? And I think just in looking at the current situation around the world and the current mentality that exists and is, and is growing uh, toward Jews worldwide, I, I think we're, we're gonna have to conclude that the dragon is still very much at war with the woman. So what I wanna do is I just wanna go through some, some current information. All of this is, is up to date. Some, much of the stuff you, if you're paying close attention to the news, you would have heard about it over the last couple of weeks. That's how fresh uh, much of this stuff is here. And it has to do with anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is uh, a way of referring to this um, prejudice against the Jewish people. Now, once again, let me just clarify, don't um, get sidetracked with, well, what about all the other groups of people that are being persecuted? How come you're just talking about the Jews and all of that? Uh, we're, that's, that's not our uh, objective today. My, my objective is to show the, the truth of what the Bible is saying about Satan's war against Israel. And I, I want to show you that the only way to understand history is to understand it from the, the perspective of the scriptures. That's, that's the only way to really be able to understand why things have been the way they've been for Israel and the way, why they are uh, as they are today. So currently, are there things happening around us that would uh, indicate that this, this war is still going on? I wanna start here in the US and I wanna just kind of move around the world with it. Um, currently, right now, this is, this is news right, you know, hot off the press. Uh, in New York City, the, um, the City University, which has a long history, uh, which, which has been known in the past as the Jewish Harvard, because many of you know New York City was the home of, uh, at one time, 10 million Jews. And uh, many of them have gone through uh, the city university there in New York. But something's happened recently that has got the attention of a number of people in the, the media. There is suddenly this very anti-Semitic sentiment that has risen up on the, the campuses. There's a number of campuses around the city uh, of this university. And uh, Jews are feeling very unwelcome and there's a lot of hostility being directed toward them right now. I think it was the New York Times uh, wrote about it. I saw an interview on a, one of the news stations uh, about what's happening there. But it comes down to this, that there is a growing hostility toward the Jewish student population. And things like this are now becoming frequent. Um, they're calling for Jews to be expelled from the university. They're, they're not welcome there. Uh, one of the professors at uh, Brooklyn College uh, in a meeting, in a faculty meeting, was referred to as a, as a Zionist pig, a Jewish professor. Um, uh, Jewish stu students are being uh, verbally harassed. And now, Here's the troubling thing. 
as troubling as that is, the more troubling thing is that as these reports are coming to the administration and as they're going even beyond the university's administration and they're coming to the mayor and the city council, nobody seems to want to do much about this. So it's a very eerie similarity between things that we've seen in history in the past. So this is happening in New York and I'm sure there are other places in the US where we could find similar kinds of things going on. But if we jump across the Atlantic to the UK, where there has been, quite frankly, a long history of uh, anti-Semitism dating all the way back to the medieval period, um, at Oxford University, recently there have been some things that have transpired there where uh, a young leader of the Oxford University Labor Club, a, a, a non-Jewish leader, resigned as the co-chair of the club, alleging that many members of the club were openly anti-Semitic. And he began to sense this anti-Semitism and he just thought, I, got, I don't wanna have anything to do with this. So he stepped out of this. But this has drawn the attention of the media and just to read from an article here, it says leftist students, leftist student politics in Britain has become poisonous with varying attitudes toward Jews. So the attitudes, casual anti-Semitism, fantasies of Jewish conspiracy theories, organized harassment and bullying. For some time there has been uh, disquiet over reports in the universities of anti-Jewish racism, verbal abuse against Jews, and prejudice against Jews. So this is happening in England, and specifically in Oxford. But then you go to Europe itself. And this is a very interesting article from The Guardian. The Guardian is uh, one of the leading London newspapers. And the interview with Dieter Grauman who's president of Germany's Central Council of Jews, he told the Guardian, listen, these are the worst times since the Nazi era. On the streets you hear things like the Jews should be gassed, the Jews should be burned. We haven't had that in Germany for decades. Anyone saying those slogans isn't criticizing Israeli politics, it's just pure hatred against Jews, nothing else, and it's not just a German phenomenon. Now, of course, the whole Holocaust and all of that, it, it all, you know, it, it originated uh, in Germany. But this is, like he said, it's not just a German phenomenon. Many Jews are leaving France today. They're, they're feeling like they're being driven out of France. The terrorist attacks in Paris recently, uh, Jews were the targets of um, many of those terrorist attacks. So this is happening uh, across Europe. I was with some friends yesterday from Holland from the Amsterdam area. And just in conversation, they were telling me about uh, how Jewish people right now in Holland are feeling so unsafe that they don't want to reveal their Jewish identity. So this anti-Semitism that you would have thought was purged after the Holocaust, and as a matter of fact, for many years in Germany, if you, uh, if you expressed openly anti-Semitism, anti, anti, uh, you, you could be prosecuted. If you denied the Holocaust, like some people have done, uh, that was a, a, a crime in Germany. But all of those things are, are rapidly changing. And so we, we just see like a, an increasing anti-Jewish 
sentiment that's developing around the world. But I don't think it's seen, um, at least in policy, I don't think it's seen any more clearly anywhere than in the United Nations. It is absolutely astounding the, the position of the UN on the nation of Israel. It is inconceivable uh, the way Israel is viewed in the UN. And I just wanna give you some examples here. So Robert Wistrich, he's of the Vidal Sassoon International Center for the Study of Antisemitism. He said, the deplorable combination of discrimination, delitimage, I've had two times struggling with this word, delegitimization and double standards at the United Nations has in recent decades been a lethal source of globalized antisemitism. If the double standard of treating Israel profoundly differently than other UN members uh, isn't anti-Semitism, then consider the following. So the UN has this very blatant bias against the nation of Israel, but they say, oh no, there, there's no bias here. There's no double standard. We're just trying to be fair. That's usually what they say in response. But consider these things, uh, the human, the UN Human Rights Council. Israel is the only nation in the world that has a standing agenda item against it at every session of the UN Human Rights Council. So think about that. It's not North Korea or China or Pakistan or Syria or Sudan or Iran. The council has never condemned any of those nations for for um, violation of human rights. But they regularly condemn Israel for violations of human rights. I mean, that, that, is, that in and of itself is just almost inconceivable. From 2006 to 2013, Israel has been subjected to 45 condemnation resolutions. No other nation in the world has come close to that. In resolutions from 1947 to 91, there were 300 General Assembly resolutions against Israel. In 2012, there were 22 resolutions specifically against Israel, while there were only four for the rest of the whole world combined. So I, you'd have to be absolutely blind to miss the bias here. So. The UN Security Council, that's where the power lies. Israel is the only member state that has not and cannot serve on the Security Council. From 1948 to 2010, there were 77 resolutions directly aimed at Israel. No other nation on earth even comes close to this record of infamy. Um, Israel is excluded from uh, regional groups. Israel is the only UN member excluded from membership in its own regional group in the Middle East and Asia. Uh, the, UN, the UN's Durban conference, it's a conference that takes place in Durban, South Africa, uh, a conference on racism. The three UN Durban conferences on racism has found racism in only one of the 192 nations of the UN. Guess which nation it is? It's Israel. So 192 nations make up the United Nations and there's only one that's guilty of racism and that's Israel. I mean, if, you know, the, again, it's, it's just inconceivable. One more reference to this here. The UN has a, 
a track record for ignoring and not acting against the worst nations in the world, who, who the nations uh, worst in the sense of violating human rights. Anne Bayevsky, a senior fellow with the Hudson Institute said, there has never been a single resolution about the decades long repression of civil and political rights of the 1.3 billion people in China. Every year, UN bodies are required to produce at least 25 reports on alleged human rights violations by Israel, but not one on the Iranian criminal justice system, which mandates punishments like crucifixion, stoning, and cross amputation. Finally, she says, this is demonization of the Jewish state. So what's the point? The point is this hostility that we have seen historically is still very much alive and well and growing presently in the world today. It's all an indication of the long war between the dragon and the woman, between the devil and Israel. That's what's happening here. And when you look at this history, when you go back all the way to the beginning of the, the history of the nation, you wanna go back to Abraham or you wanna go back to the time of Moses, and you follow the history all the way through, like I said, the only way, to, I think, to really understand what's happened, how is it that this one group of people has been so hated and so consistently persecuted, it, it, it's something you, at, at a certain point, you have to realize this is beyond human explanation. It is beyond human explanation. The explanation is there is a devil. And that's what's happening behind the scenes. Back in the time of the Second World War, there was a well-known philosopher in England. Uh, his, name, his last name was Goad. And um, maybe that wasn't his last name. It's like something like that. Um, I think it was. Anyway, he was a well-known atheistic philosopher. He was a social commentator. You know, he talked about everything that was happening in the world at his time. And he shocked everybody when he came out as a person who had transitioned during the, second, the period of the Second World War in watching uh, the, the, the things that transpired. You know, it's funny because many people would look at something like that and say, well, that's why I don't believe in God. He watched it and he went from atheism to believing in God. And this is how he did it. This is, this is how he did it. This is how he transitioned. He said, when I saw all that had happened with Hitler and the Nazis and the war and the Holocaust and all of that, he said, I knew that this kind of evil could not originate in man. There must really be a devil. That was his first stop. It was at the devil. His first, his first stop on the road to, to believing in God was belief in the devil. And once he believed in the devil, then obviously if there's a devil, there must be a God. So that's how he came to believe. And he publicly announced, I don't know that he ever became a Christian in the biblical sense, but he publicly announced that he had moved away from atheism and that he had come to believe in God because you could only understand the events that transpired if there was a devil. And that's indeed what we see with these things. The explanation for these things is the devil. And 
we have to be aware of that. We have to be conscious of that as we see the stuff happening around us. And as sometimes we might be tempted to get sucked up into a certain mentality. And again, just remember, we're not, you know, this isn't a uh, pro-Israel in the sense that, you know, the Israeli government is perfect, it's wonderful, it never does anything wrong, we're just one, we're not, I'm not saying anything like that. Of course, it's a human government full of sinners and it's got all kinds of problems, just like every other government does. What I want us to see is the long war of the devil against the woman and ultimately against the child. So here's a question as we come to our conclusion. What is Satan's end game? That's the question. What, what is, what is, what's the objective? Now you, you can understand the devil's objective in the, the first part of the history of the nation in trying to stop the Messiah from coming into the world. You can understand that, that that's fairly easy. Okay, he tried to wipe out the nation, he tried to corrupt the nation, he tried to just have the nation assimilated into other nations and lose its distinction. He's trying to prevent the Messiah from coming into the world, but he fails. But now that the Messiah has come, why, why does he still carry on his war against the woman? And this is why. Because now his end game is to prevent Christ from sitting upon the throne of David and ruling over the house of Jacob because that's the fulfillment of all of those promises. You see, we are focusing on, and rightfully, we're focusing on the gospel. We're focusing on the first coming of Christ and his death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. And that's exactly where we do need to be focused, but we can't stop there completely. We've got to remember that all of those things were foundational for what's coming in the future because the majority of Bible prophecy doesn't speak about what happened at Calvary and at the tomb, the majority of Bible prophecy speaks about what's gonna happen in the future. And the future is that Jesus, the King of Israel, the son of David, is gonna sit on the Davidic throne as God promised to David that there would be one of his descendants that would sit up on his throne forever. And it seems, although I don't really know the mind of the devil, I'm just kind of trying to think about why he would do what he's doing, it seems to me that in his twisted mind, he feels that if he can wipe out the seed, if he can wipe out the house of Jacob, the Messiah has no one to reign over. The Davidic throne can never be established. And of course, the objective of the devil, as we're gonna see as we go on further in the book, is he, he wants to be the one on the throne. That's been his whole desire from the very beginning. And that's what's gonna happen during this period of time that we're looking at. He's gonna have a very short reign. But it seems to me like that's what's driving all of this. But here's the great and wonderful news. He is doomed to fail. He is doomed to fail. There's no way that he will succeed. And you know, another one of the most perplexing things to people in the world is not only the persecution of the Jews through all, all of history, but their continued existence. 
their continued resilience, their continued ability to go on despite all of these efforts. That's another perplexing thing. And the answer to that is God is sustaining them. And in the end, here's what will happen. The dragon will be defeated, the woman will be saved, and the true king of Israel in the universe will sit up on his throne and he will rule the nations with a scepter of iron, just as we're told here. So what do, what do we wanna take away from today? You know, I struggled with um, <laughs> the application for the message today. I told. Cheryl and others, I felt like today's more like, you know, it's kind of like a, a classroom lecture. How do you go from a classroom lecture to application? But here's the application, I think, for us today. Number one, what we need to take away from this is the truth of the, of the Bible. The Bible is true. God's word is true. History is just like the Bible said it would be. And remember, these things were prophesied 2,000 years ago, at least. These things right here were, but of course, the other prophecies go back even further. So the world is just the way God's word said it would be. The history of the nation of Israel is just the way God said it would be. The attitude of the nations is just the way God said it would be. So for us who believe in the scripture, we can take home today that we can trust this book completely. And everything that it says is true. This is reality and everything that opposes it and contradicts it is not reality and it's not going to stand in the long run. So we have that solid rock of the truth of God's word to stand upon. But we also wanna take away from it that as we see these things happening around us, and we've looked at this a number of times, right? As we see these things happening around us, they're all preparatory. The, the world is, there's a conditioning that's going on. And it's all in preparation for the fulfillment. Remember, the book of Revelation is about the future. Everything we're reading today is about the future. But of course, before we get there in the, in, in the total sense, there's obviously going to be a preparation for it. There's going to be a conditioning for it. And as we look around the world, we see that the world is indeed being conditioned for these very things that it tells us here. But also finally, the application for us is that we have uh, a job to do. We have work to do until the Lord comes, and that is the work of the gospel. We have to get the gospel out. We have the work of discipleship, making disciples. We have the work of seeing the kingdom advanced. And so as we look at these things happening, we're not to just sort of, you know, look at them and, and think about them and then say, well, oh, that's all very interesting. Wow. No, we're supposed to look at them, think about them and say, man, we still have an opportunity and God is still at work. And you know, last year I was in Israel, I'm going again, we're going again in a couple of months here. And one of the things that is exciting and encouraging is that amongst believers in Israel today, there is the sense that there's more openness to the gospel today in Israel than there's ever been in the past. 
that there, there's more of a willingness to consider on the part of Jewish people the possibility of Jesus being the Messiah than there has ever been before. And so, you know, this is a time. There's, there's a, an opportunity before us. And so whether it's with, with Jews, whether it's with Gentiles, you know, whoever it is, wherever it is, it's, it's time for us to be going forward without distraction for the advancement of the kingdom, knowing that ultimately Christ will come and he will establish that kingdom. Just as he said on that Palm Sunday, I'm gonna finish everything with tying it into Palm Sunday. On that first Palm Sunday, you remember Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey. They hailed, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus went into the temple, but he wasn't received by the leaders. He was rejected. And as he left, he said this. He said, your house is left to you desolate, and you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that has indeed been the case throughout the history of the nation. But there's coming a time when they will see him again. There's coming a time when they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As Jesus comes to rescue Israel, to save the woman from the dragon and to set up that throne that was promised to him. And so that's where things are headed. And it's all in one sense, it's in God's hands. We can't change the, the larger events that are going to bring this about. But what we can do is keep our focus on the mission. And the mission is to get the gospel to as many people as we can with the time left that we have. So Lord, help us to do that, we pray. And Lord, we just pray today for your spirit to be working throughout the nations and amongst the people. And Lord, whatever group of people, we know that you love all people and you wanna save all people. And we know, Lord, that there are masses of people that are just deceived. And they have a hatred inside of them toward your ancient people and they don't even know why it's there. It's there because of Satan. But Lord, you're able to free people from that. You're able to deliver them. You're able to save them. And so we just pray that there would be a great move of your spirit all around the world, all among, uh, among all of the nations, bringing in many. Lord, work in our lives as well, in our community as well. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that we can bet our lives on your word. Thank you, Lord, for all of the various ways that you confirm to us the truth of your word. And in a world that's saturated in lies and deception, may we stand strong in the truth and on the truth. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.